All right. Are you ready for Revelation chapter 7? You know, I was thinking, how do I introduce this? You don't need to introduce this. How do I get attention? You don't need to get attention with a story here. All I have to say is what happens to you in the Great Tribulation? What happens to you in the Great Tribulation? You know, will it be like the bumper sticker says, caution in case of rapture, this vehicle will be unmanned. Is that what will happen to you? You'll be pulled out in the middle of catching a pass on the football field. You'll be pulled out in the middle of washing the dishes. You'll be pulled out in the middle of driving your car down I-35. You'll be pulled out in the middle of doing a calculus equation on the board. You'll be pulled out in all kinds of situations and circumstances. Is that what's going to happen to you in the Great Tribulation? What happens to you if you are an unbelieving Jew in the Great Tribulation? Will you see all these unmanned vehicles cruising down the street? And all these unmanned ball games and businesses and families and homes and local school boards? Because there was a rapture that pulled the Gentiles, believing Gentiles out, and you're an unbelieving Israelite Jewish person, and you look around, and the Lord uses this to convert you to Jesus, and you become literally one of the 144,000 Israelites that need to be sealed now in the Great Tribulation. Is that what happens to you? What happens to you in the Great Tribulation if you're a Christian and there is no rapture? I mean, you don't get pulled out when the powder keg goes off. You're left here during the Great Tribulation. And you end up facing the four horrible horsemen. Conquest, bloodshed, famine, and death. You end up facing great personal distress, great personal difficulty, great personal discouragement, maybe even despair. Is that what happens to you? You end up might facing this great frontal assaults of the devil, frontal assaults of the world, frontal assaults from your own flesh. What happens to you? What happens to you when you grow up believing in God and you grow up believing and going to church and you trust in Jesus, but then you suffer this great loss and you suffer this great loss in such a way that you're now struggling to believe that God is good. And what happens to you when you fight to have faith, but it keeps slipping through your fingers? What happens to you? What happens to you if you are a father and you fear that your failure as a father has separated you from the love of God. What happens to you if your greatest fear comes true? You lose your loved one. The doctor tells you you have cancer. You face public persecution for your faith. You end up compromising Christ for comfort. You have this tremendous moral failure. What happens to you? What happens to me in the Great Tribulation? Right? 
Well, here's what's happening in this passage. We need to get our bearings, and then we're going to answer that question, because that question and its answer is the big idea of Revelation chapter 7. But of course I need to prove it to you, because there's this, this is a lot of territory and a lot of landscape in the Scriptures that's much ink has been spilled, and a lot of things have been done, and even movies have been made, and even popular novels are being written. And so we come here with a lot of thinking about these passages, whether we realize it or not. And I think even as we begin to look at this passage this morning, you're going to start remembering a lot of the teaching you've got on it, whether it was official teaching in the church or whether you got it from a novel you were reading. But you're going to hear it. You're going to hear the themes. So there, in one sense, what we're doing this morning is we've got to kind of clear through the fog of some foggy teaching, and we've got to turn on the light of what it's really saying in this passage, all at the same time. So it's a gigantic task for us this morning. So buckle your seatbelts in, put your crash helmets on, because here we go. All right, here's what's happening. The lion lamb has the scroll, right? He has the scroll. The king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has the scroll in his hands, chapter 5. Remember, who can open the scroll? Who can take the scroll? And the answer is silence in heaven, on earth, under the sea, in the dead realms. And then there's one, the lion comes forward and he has the scroll in his hand. And he's worthy to open it. And as he opens it, he's going to pop off these seals, remember? Because in the scroll, there's writing on the inside and the outside. And this is the kingdom of God's stuff. This is the one that can open the scroll is the one who brings in the kingdom of God. And there's only one who can do that, and that's the lion lamb that we've seen. But when, when a holy heaven comes in contact with a corrupt earth, what happens? Justice. The seals are the justice. Seal one, two, three, four. These are called providential justices, judgments. These are limited justice or judgments. These are pre-wrath wrath, pre-judgment judgment. These are intrusions from a final consummation coming in now and giving us a little foretaste and little forecast of what final and full judgment will be like. But it's a foretaste and it's a forecast and they're limited. So it's a very severe mercy for us. Because postponement of final justice is yet to be. And so these judgments, these seals go forward. And remember, they go in the forward of these horrible horsemen. Conquest rides on a horse. Bloodshed. Famine and death. And they sweep the earth. But remember, they are apportioned a very specific lot. A quarter of the earth, not all the earth. A portion of this, not all of it, because it's limited. They're providential. They're not final and full. And then we get to seal five and we see these slaughtered saints. And they're not on earth. We're now in heaven. And these slaughtered saints could be literal martyred saints. Or they could be symbolic of all saints who die during the tribulation. And that's the view I take. Okay? So you have these slaughtered saints. And they're asking for consummative justice to come now. Remember, that's that intrusion ethics we talked about. 
And then in seal six, we get the answer to their prayer. And we have this earthquake, skyquake, massive renting of the heavens and the earth because holy heaven will now sit on a new heavens and a new earth. And in order to do so, the old earth that is corrupt and stained by sin and the touch of the dragon must be dealt with and and destroyed. So that's where we're at, okay? Now, where's seal seven? Chapter six. All right. No seal seven. Going to chapter seven. No seal seven. Ah, we've got to go to eight. Look at the beginning of eight, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal. So finally the seventh seal happens. So what's happening in between the sixth seal and the seventh seal? There's this great pause, this intermission, this great interlude or delay. And the question is, why? How you answer this will determine whether... You go one way in your interpretation of Revelation or you go the other way. This will determine how you see the 144,000. It will determine what you think the great tribulation is. This will determine... It will determine a lot of things in your interpretation of this passage. Okay? Why? Well, let's see if we can begin to piece it together a little bit. Look at the end of seal 6, verse 16 in chapter 6. 17, 617, for the day, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? When seal six happens, and the skyquake, earthquake, massive renting and elimination of this present world takes place, the unbelieving earth dwellers, as Revelation calls them, those that resist the grace of God, those that rebel against God and will not submit to his goodness, refuse to trust in the slaughter of the the lamb, those folks would rather have mountains fall on them than face the wrath and justice of God. They would rather have mount, I don't pick a mountain, be lifted up and fall on top of them than stand before the holy God. And the question is, who can stand? And chapter 7 tells us. Chapter 7 is the answer to the earth dweller's question. Who can stand? Let's look at specifically 7, let's go 9 and 10. 7, 9 and 10. And after this, I looked, I mean, notice the language. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, doing what? Standing before the throne. Who can stand? And the next vision is given to tell you who can stand. The only ones that stand are the ones that trust in a slaughter. There are standing saints because there's a slaughtered lamb. There's a lamb that takes the first four seals a direct hit on himself. There's a lamb that takes the sixth seal, the full And final pour out of God's justice and His wrath and His holiness towards that which spurns it and hates it and despises Him. 
and he pours out his wrath and he slaughters his son. And the song in heaven is salvation belongs to the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And that's the only song that's sung in this particular part. And it's a song of salvation through slaughter. All right, so now we know what the answer is. We know that the answer is the only ones that can stand, the only ones that can stand before a holy God and not be utterly destroyed by the wrath and curse of God are those who sing the song of salvation by slaughter and trust in a slaughter, not their own, but the slaughter of a lamb in their place. They stand. All right. We've got that. And we've got to get this structure down so that we read Revelation rightly. Because what I want you to see, it's very crucial when we move into chapter 7, from 6 to 7, when it says, After this I saw the normal interpretation today, the most common interpretation today is that this is now another event in a timeline. After this event comes this event. But what we are hopefully beginning to see is we're unfolding seven chapters now of Revelation that what John's doing is not giving you a, a chronology a timeline, but he's actually he's organizing himself around themes and heavenly commentary and ideas and truth through pictures. So this is a picture book. This is truth being communicated through pictures, not truth being communicated through timelined events and chronology. So when it gets to 7.1 and it says, after this, the way we should read this is not, here's the next chronological event, but here's the next vision that gives you more reality to think about, more themes to see. In other words, who can stand, here's the answer. Not after these seals come this event, and after this event comes this event. And if you read your Bible carefully, you can piece together a chronological event of how the end times will unfold. And not only how they will unfold, but specifically where you might see the manifestations of them taking place. And you can grab your newspaper and you can look at your newspaper and say, Ah, this event's taking place now in the year 2005, and I anticipate by the year 2020 we can anticipate this. And those are a wrong way to look at the book of Revelation. Okay? All right. So... Here's the big idea. If you are a saint who sings salvation by slaughter, what happens to you in the great tribulation? The answers are before us. There are three of them. Let's get going. The first one is this. If you are a saint, what happens to you in the great tribulation? First, the great tribulation is upon you right now. Forget about a rapture. The great tribulation is upon you right now. Forget about a rapture. You don't need to worry about a pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib rapture. I know I might be stepping on some toes, and if I had my mentor here, Paul Settle, as Ross Early used to say about him, you know what I like about Paul? He can step on your shoes without messing up your shine. I'm trying to step on shoes without messing up shine. So we'll see how well I do. 
All right, in a recent article in the Suffering Church, the journal FaithWorks listed the type of persecutions that one could face. I'm going to blast through them, but just get the breadth that have been cataloged over the years. Disapproval, ridicule, pressure to conform, loss of educational opportunities, economic sanctions, shunning, alienation from community, loss of employment, loss of property, physical abuse, mob violence, harassment by officials, kidnapping, forced labor, imprisonment, physical torture, murder or execution. We could add to this list this form of suffering in the form of persecution. We can add a a bunch of other forms of suffering outside of just persecution. We can add this, terrifying temptations. We can add a strangling sin that won't let you go. We can add the need for biblical counseling for dominating fears and desires and addictions that hold us. We can add marital stress and family and relational conflict. We can add financial stress. We can add toil and lack of blessing in your labor. Remember, labor is a gift from God. Toil and labor is a curse. No blessing. It doesn't yield what you want. Those of you that follow me in a day particularly my wife, when I get to the end of the day, I say over and over again, I didn't get done what I wanted to get done. She goes, well, how long's your list, honey? And I go, Whoop. she goes, maybe that's your problem. But the blessing that I expect to get doesn't happen. I expect to walk on water. Do you? One day we will. All right. The futility of cars breaking down, clothes wearing out, computers crashing, losing your house keys, being locked out of your home. Tsunamis. I can't resist. Tsunamis. <laughs> Earthquakes, hurricanes, sicknesses, viruses, cancers, epidemics, physical deformities, bodies breaking down, war, terrorism, rumors of war, violence, misery, death. All of this suffering is the normal Christian life. Because we're in the tribulation right now. Turn to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, 9. I've got to prove this. Revelation 1, 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos. I, John, your brother and partner in what? The tribulation. John and the seven churches were in the tribulation. We live during the tribulation. You've got, and I've got, to get the structure of Revelation to understand this. In chapter 5, we have a crowning ceremony. It's after the resurrection. It's the resurrection and ascension. We get a peek into the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. He steps into heavenly glory. The Father crowns the Son... And it's a crowning ceremony, and Jesus is now the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the Davidic-like king that was promised, and now he's come, and he's brought in the kingdom of God. And God goes, I crown you king. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. It's a crowning ceremony. This, this better Adam, this better Israel, has now taken creation and led it to the consummation, which the first Adam and the true Israel were supposed to do, but they didn't. Chapter 5, 
And then the question is, if he's on his throne, and if 5-5 is correct, he's conquered, he's able to take the seal, the scroll, and he can open the kingdom of God, why is there still violence and misery and death and sin in the world right now? And the answer was chapter 6. The answer is because the kingdom of God comes in three stages. The first one in chapter 5, it comes for us in Jesus. Or as Voss would say, this is the age of the gospel. This is the age of what Jesus does for you, apart from you. And he brings in the kingdom. And then there's the second age, and that's the first four seals. And that's what's happening in this world's realm, is that the kingdom is here, yes, because Jesus has brought it, but it's not perfect yet. It's here, but not yet. And Voss, the great biblical theologian, would say, if, if this is the age of justification, the first stage, the gospel age, one of the fruits of it is the age of sanctification. This is the age we live in. The third stage of the kingdom is when it comes finally and fully to us. That's seal six. That's why there's this great earthquake, skyquake. Things are moving now towards the consummation, the ultra-eternal life. Stage one, gospel. King's crowned. He brought the kingdom. Now he's applying it. Stage two, imperfectly. It's here. It breaks in through word, breaks in through the gospel, and it's responded to by faith. That's what's taking place now. The kingdom is breaking in upon us through word and spirit. But we're still waiting for the final fulfillment of it or the age of glorification. Okay? To summarize it all up, we live in the age of sanctification. We live in the age of the church. The, the time between the first coming and the second coming is the great tribulation. Christ has come and conquered, but we're still here. And we're waiting consummation. So there is no rapture out of here. There's a resurrection at the end. Okay? Now, we need to get that so that we get the next one. Here's the next one. How do we make it then? How do you, how do you live during the Great Tribulation if there's no rapture? How do you go on through all that list of suffering and that list of distress and that list of difficulty that we've looked at? How do you, like John, live through the Great Tribulation? That's why chapter 7 is here. It's telling us how. And the answer is this. There are four seals that are going to go forward and they're going to sweep the earth. And they're targeting unbelievers to be a severe mercy. But they also hit you and me. Tsunamis and earthquakes. War and rumor of war. Terrorism, evil, violence, distress, physical deformities, epidemics. They all hit us. One side they hit as a severe mercy to lead to repentance. The other side they hit in the forms of persecution, suffering, and distress, the church. And the answer that, that John is anticipating and that the scriptures are writing to is, how do you make it then? And the answer is, because you're sealed. You're sealed as God's prized possession. That's the answer. Now, here's the picture. Are you ready? The second vision that John sees in 7 is after the four heavenly 
beings, those, that tremendous praetorium guard that surrounds God's throne, and they whistle, remember in 6, they whistle and they say, Come! And here comes the one horseman. The next one says, Come! Here comes the second horseman. And now we get the second vision, and it's right after the, the angels call these four horsemen forward, these four angels hold them back from the four corners of the earth. And these four horsemen are likened to the wind that's about ready to blow over the earth. And these four, hor- these four angels hold the four horsemen back, and they hold them back. And while they're holding them back, another angel rises with the sun, which means he rises from the east. Now, there's two pictures it could possibly be. One is that the Old Testament in Judaism has always said that coming from the east is where your deliverance and your help comes from. Particularly the appearance of God comes from the east. So it's almost like this. If you were an Old Testament saint and you were in distress, you would say to your friend or you would say to your spouse or you would say to your child, Son, eyes to the east. Put your eyes to the east. That's where your help comes from. That could be the meaning and that's a tremendous meaning. It also could mean this, though, in Revelation 16 and Revelation 19, the east is where the evil demonic forces come from. So it's almost as if it's a parody. This angel rises out of the hell hole that the demons come from and the demonic forces come from to ravage the earth but he shows his superiority in protecting and providing and his power to seal his saints. So we're getting a picture here, aren't we? But before we move on in this picture, notice again, evil is on God's leash. Is it evil? You bet it's evil. Do you want to get in the the cage with it? You don't want to get into the cage with it. If you do, you'll be mauled. But it's on his leash. And he holds it back. And he is ultimately in control. That's the picture here. And the church that's in the tribulation needs to find comfort in that reality. There is not four horsemen that are running and can run beyond a quarter of the earth. Okay? Alright. Now, where am I? So the seal, the seal is this. This angel rises from the east, and notice what the angel has in his hand. He has this large signet ring. It's the, it's the ring of the king, and it's a sealer. And just like in those days, remember, marks were put on foreheads, and that meant it might have been a brand or a tattoo, but it was some way in which a slave, and notice it interesting, the language here in the text. Look what it says. When it says that he seals us, he's sealing literally his servants. Literal translations are his slaves. So the picture is real clear. This angel has a signet ring, and it's either a seal that's about ready to impress a tattoo or burn a brand of ownership onto sealed saints. And so what's happening here, the picture is the seal is a sign of ownership The seal is a sign of royal possession. The seal is a sign of your mind. And so to the 
the four horsemen and to all demonic powers and to all persecutors and all troublemakers, the seal says, she's mine, hands off. Or else. Do you see that? And so to you and to me, what we need to see is the seal is saying to us, you are God's who or what can be against you. And that is incredible good news. And so the answer is, does this mean you lose heart? Yes, you do. Does it mean you lose limbs? Yes, you do. Does it mean you lose loved ones? Yes, you do. Does it mean you lose homes and wealth and reputation and approval of others and maybe some earthly form of success? Yes, you do. But you do not lose God. Because he will not lose you. Because he owns you. He has sealed you. So the ownership brings protection and it brings provision, but I want you to remember the ownership doesn't protect you from the tribulation. The ownership protects your faith in the tribulation. So that you have faith amidst the fire. Because God does not lose you, you will not lose your faith. That's the point. So when all heck breaks loose, and it comes in very neat packages in your life right now, and who knows what it is for you right now, but you are living in the Great Tribulation, which means you are living in a corrupt world, which means you are living in the reality of, of four seals being broken, and in the, in the, the reality of that distress and suffering in the world, temporal judgments to wake us up, severe mercies, And there are distress and persecutions. There is violence and misery. There is war and rumors of war. There is terrorism. There is evil that's done against you. You've got to live with the sin in yourself. All these realities. The bottom line is, no matter what it is, God says, you're mine. Who or what can be against you? So, let's go back to the beginning when we talked about some of these folks like... You grew up believing in God, you trusted in Jesus, but you've suffered a great loss and you now struggle to believe God's good. You fight to find faith and it keeps slipping away. The seal says to you, you're gods who are what can be against you. You're gods. God owns you. You're his prized possession. He will not let you go. And so what happens now is that you begin to have a deepening faith in the Lord when you believe the seal. And when you begin to believe the seal, there's a fruit that results from it. You actually begin to experience, because this is true, because he says he sealed you, because he says I won't let you go, because you're mine and you're my prized possession, hands off, you're mine, because that's true, there's a heart-warming, soul-warming reality that takes place. You begin to experience the never-failing and unending love of God in his presence. And that transforms you. It gives you new life and new energy. It gives you new power now. Maybe what you need to do because of the great loss, maybe you need to now, you have strength and energy and power to not let that pain and that loss and those desires dominate you anymore like they were. 
All because you've realized that you're God's and He won't let you go. And it might give you courage now to look outside of yourself and to pursue your good and the good of others and to actually pursue God's glory advancing in these troubled times. Right? That's what this does to you. How about the Father? The Father that's failed so much he feels like he's separated from God's love. The seal says to you, you are God's. Who are what can be against you? So your faith grows stronger and deeper in God. He won't let you go. He owns you. You're his prized possession. And now the love and the presence of God floods in and warms your heart. And now again, there's a transforming power that takes place because now you have the courage to face your sin. And you might have the courage to go tell your children or tell your spouse what your sin is and you confess it. And you have the courage to now and the strength now to repent and turn away from it. And you have the courage now to go forward by God's grace to keep growing in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus and learn to shepherd your family instead of tuning out of them and neglecting them or whatever it is that you feel like you're a failure about. Okay? On May 28, 1972, the Duke of Windsor, the uncrowned King Edward VIII, died in Paris. That evening on a television program, they recounted his life. The viewers watched film footage that followed him through his childhood, through his being uh, the Duke, his brief reign, and his eventual abdication of the throne. Well, at one point, he's recalling his boyhood. The Prince of Wales said, My father, King George V, was a strict disciplinarian. Sometimes when I had done something wrong, he would admonish me saying, My dear boy, you must always remember who you are. My brothers and sisters, we must always remember whose we are. You are sealed. You are God's. Who or what can be against you? Now, there's a theological hammer here that is meant to hammer the seal even more deeply into your mind and to your heart. And here it is. Hear it first before you start reacting to it. You were sealed before you believed. Look at verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, if you want a timeline, here's a timeline. Jesus rises, he ascends, he gets crowned, and now the church age is about ready to begin. Because the church age is about ready to begin, heaven in some way is going to touch this earth here but not yet, so there's going to be providential judgments. The horses come out, but the angel says, stop. You can't go just yet. Seal them. Now go. This is a picture of the propositions in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, when the text says, Paul says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Also Ephesians 1, 5, the proposition, in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of the will. This theological hammer is not meant to hurt you. It's not meant to create controversy. It's not meant to create 
counsels over God's sovereignty and human free will. It's not meant to hurt you so that you turn into this introspective morbidity, if that's a word. Dr. Jeffries, is that a word? Thank you. How intimidating is that with my vocabulary? All right. It's not a despairing introspection. You don't sit around and say, am I sealed? How do I know if I'm sealed? That's not what this doctrine is meant to do. You know what this doctrine is meant to do? It's meant to hammer home hope in God alone. It's meant to hammer into your mind, into your heart. There's only hope in God alone. And it's a good place to be. It's actually unsafe to be outside of hoping in God alone. It's not safe to hope in your hoping. It's not safe to hope in the strength of your faith. It's not safe to hope in your sentiment and in your passions and your feelings and your desires and some strength of your will. It's not safe to hope in those things. The only safe place is hoping in God alone. That He alone saves you. That He alone does it all. That's the safe place. Okay? So, hope and trust in God alone. He gives pardon and He gives perfection because of the resurrection and of His Son freely. Hope in it. He gives the faith and the hope that you lack right now. Even that He gives. Do you lack a love for Him? Do you lack worship for Him? Do you lack like I'm spiritually sluggish? Do you say, I'm such a spiritual midget? Of course, everybody else in here is doing great, but I'm not. And do you feel that tension? Do you feel not just the pull of sin in your life that leads to what we always say, here are the sins I do, but do you feel the lack of godliness in your life? The lack of passion for God, the lack of living for His glory. What does that look like and what does that mean? This is so comforting. What you lack, He freely gives. Because our hope and our trust is in Him. I need faith. Okay, well, hope and trust in Him. For that faith. I need power to deal with the sin. Okay, don't hope in your hoping. Don't hope in the strength of your will. Don't hope in signing a prayer card. Hope in Him. Right? And the reason why we can do this is because the slaughter of His Son was enough. That's why we can trust Him. That's why the elder goes, do you know why these people are here, John? Do you know where they come from, John? And he says, you know. Here's where they come from, John. They come from the blood of the Lamb. That's where they come from. And they're coming out of the tribulation between the first and second coming because the slaughter of the Son is enough to create saints. Hope in that. I'm out of time, and I apologize. And maybe I'll have to do something another time, but I, I am going to talk, wanted to talk about the 144,000. You might be curious about what that means. <laughs> you know, is it symbolic of saints like you and me, or is it a specific Jewish remnant? Might be important to this text. Hopefully you're beginning to see the answer for yourself, but there's some other good evidence there for you. 
I also had one other thing I wanted to touch on. That if you're a saint, what happens to you in the great tribulation, I'll say it, you're sealed for ultra happiness. I think I can do this in two minutes. It's Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17, is giving you the perspective of the church triumph, I mean the perspective of the church militant. Are you familiar with that term? No, we're not on a holy war. We're not like radical Islam. But what's very fascinating is that when the church or the people of God are existing, obviously I'm showing my hand on what the 144,000 are. They're symbolic of the church. They're symbolic of God's people coming out perfectly, completely, the perfect number in the time between the first coming and the second coming. And I'll argue why that's the case, because number one, this section of the 12 tribes of Israel, if you're going to be a literalist, you're not going to find this literal list in the Old Testament. God mixes and matches who he puts in, who he leaves out, because it's a symbolic list, just as the number's symbolic. But notice, when God was sending the Israelites into the promised land, what did he do in Numbers? Very first chapter, chapter 1, he numbers them before they go into the promised land. And he organizes them militarily before they go into the promised land. The church militant, that's where that term comes from. Here, the church in the tribulation is not home yet. It hasn't gone into the promised land yet. It's being organized by the perfect number, 144,000, ready to go into the promised land. That's verses 1 through 8. Now, 9 through 17 is another perspective, but now it's a heavenly perspective of the earthly. And that is this church. And when they die, they're coming out and they're entering into the church triumphant. That's what's happening in 9 through 17. Okay? And I have a lot to say about that, but I won't. Uh, Yes, I'll have to make a whole new sermon. All right, let's end. My parents' old pastor is a man named Bruce Thielman, and he tells the story of a terrible ice storm that hit Pittsburgh. And he was making travel almost impossible, and at the height of the storm, there's a church family in the church that called and said they need help. Their son, who has leukemia, has taken a turn for the worst. And he needs to get to the hospital ASAP. Well, an ambulance could not be sent. They wouldn't send ambulances out in the weather. And these folks did not have a car, so Dr. Thiel- and Dr. Thielman's car was in the shop, so he called an elder. The elder got in his car began the treacherous journey. The brakes, he said, were useless. The ice was so slick he could not stop for stop signs or stop lights. He just kept going. He had three minor accidents on the way to the family's house. When he finally reached the house, the parents brought the boy out. He was wrapped in a blanket. The mom took the boy in his arms in the front seat. Dad hopped into the back. And they finally, slowly, get started towards the hospital. And this is where Dr. Thielman says, quote, They came to the bottom of a hill, and as they managed to skid to a stop, he tried to decide whether he should try to make the grade on the other side or whether he should go right down the valley to the hospital on the ice. As he was thinking about this, he chanced to look to the right and saw the face of the little boy. The youngster's face was flushed. His eyes were wide with fever and with fear. To comfort the child, he reached over and he just tasseled the boy's hair. Then it was that the little boy said to him, Mister, are you Jesus? 
And then Dr. Thielman says, people who piddle around with life never know moments like that. Brothers and sisters, because you are sealed as God's prized possession, and then we'll hear about later, because you're sealed for ultra happiness, don't piddle around in the tribulation. The world, the devil, and your flesh are conspiring to make you a piddler. But you were made for something else. I was made for something else. We are sealed for steadfastness and for significance in the tribulation. He didn't pull us out. He left us here to be steadfast and significant for the glory of God. Amen.